Listen, uh, I want to review real briefly last week because it kind of is the jumping off point for where we're going to go today. Last week, we looked at Hebrews chapter 10, and we got down to that part where who are we and what do we do? And so that starts in, in verse 18. Let me read that to you. And uh, I'm going to stay in the N.T. Wright New Testament. We'll, we can look around some other stuff if we need to. But it says, so then where these are put away, there is no longer sacrifice for sin. These is the idea of our sins. Uh, God says he'll never remember anymore. Their sins and our lawless deeds are going to be forgotten. Um, he's going to put his law in our hearts. And then we got into this beautiful part. So then, because of this, because of the finished work that Jesus did, so then, my brothers and sisters, we have boldness to go into the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus. He has inaugurated a brand new living path through the curtain that is his earthly body. And we have a high priest who, who is over God's house. Let us, therefore, come to worship with a true heart in complete assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So let me just reflect back on what we just did. Simple thing of just allowing the stuff in our hearts to come out, allowing the love in our, in our hearts and our mind to come to God. This is the essence of worship. This is what we're, what we're doing. This is, this is who we are. And it's because Jesus has made a new and living way because he has dealt one time with sin forever, and because we can now come through the veil that is his body. That's, that's who we are. Now, what are we supposed to be? What's our mission? What's our objective and our doing? It's the next paragraph, verse 23. Therefore, let us hold tightly to our confession of hope without being diverted. The one who announced the message to us is trustworthy. So what I want to do is, is just call to mind, the message that we've looked at in the new covenant. The message is that Jesus has died for sin once for all. He died to take away sin. He's coming again without reference to sin. There's no more sacrifice for sin necessary. Um, and, and so he did this with his own body, his own blood. It was foretold through all the other sacrifices. It was uh, set up, if you will, that way. Jesus took that sacrifice to the, the perfect tabernacle, the one in heaven, and the scripture says at the consummation of the ages, at the end of the ages. So we find ourselves in a finished work is what I'm talking about. And that finished work provides us access to the presence of God. And this is one of the big things we're, we're, we're learning, you know. That access is, is access reserved for sons. That's why we have it. But we are sons. We are family. We are made into this thing. It's because of the work that he did. So he's opened the way. He is the way that we're going in by his blood. It's through his body that we have access. And, and that access is to the holy place. It's a place where our sins have been reckoned with. Uh, mercy is extended to us. We live as perpetually forgiven people. And, uh, and then it says that let's hold on tightly to our confession of hope. Now, what is our confession of hope? I grew up most of my life thinking that confession of hope was whatever it was that I said during the sinner's prayer, the nature of repentance or something. But this is totally much bigger than that. It's not that at all. It's not just governed by my own salvation experience or your own salvation experience. This confession of hope is that we believe what God says about Jesus. We believe what the scripture reveals about him. We believe that he does, in fact, because of the finished nature of Christ's work, the perfect outpouring of his own blood, we believe that 
we do have access with a new and living way. That the presence of God is not some distant thing for us, not something that is far off, but it, there is a reality to it. You and I have access to it. We learn about it in ascensions. We learn about it when we pray, when we prophesy, when we do these kind of things. And so the fact also that God says, I'm going to put my law in your heart, that's something that we're supposed to believe. That's part of this confession. I'm not a stranger to the law anymore. I'm not a stranger to righteousness anymore. God has sown his righteousness. He's sown that law of righteousness into me. So I don't have to look for it over here, over there. Now, if we'll keep this confession straight, a bunch of other scriptures start making sense. We're going to see that in a little bit. Uh, like when Jesus announced the kingdom of God is within you. Well, now we have something to anchor that to. That means that all that we studied and saw in the past and all of that that foretold that kingdom literally lives inside you and me. Now, if we believe this, if, if, if it is a reality, which it is, it's, I think that's a silly way for me to say it. You don't want to say if it's a reality. Since it's a reality, believing it is the key to experiencing it. Coming to God is the key to actually experiencing God. And that's the thing that we were talking about last week. All of this work that Jesus did, all of the, the redemptive planning that the Father did, all of speaking specifically through the Son, all of a better covenant than angels, all of a, a high priest that has a perpetual office after the order of Melchizedek, all of that culminated in this invitation in the middle of Hebrews chapter 10, that we can come by his blood and it's going to, so this is going to be the topic as we move forward. Now, how do we do it? And what, what makes that tick? What makes that happen? So then here's the next thing. But interestingly, it's not super complicated. We hold tightly to our confession of hope without being diverted. The one who announced the message to us is trustworthy. Let us as well stir up one another's minds to energetic effort and love and good works. We mustn't do what some people have gotten in the habit of doing, neglecting to meet together. Instead, we must encourage one another and all the more as you can see the great day coming close. Now, if I were going to just be mercenary, I would say this is a tough time to meet together, obviously. But 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 if if we treat our hearts like they can connect, even this very thing we're doing right now, in spite of the pandemic, in spite of the, the shutdown orders, in spite of COVID interfering in our lives and all the other stuff that's going on. If we don't neglect connecting, if we don't ne neglect meeting together, we will experience the fruit of the access that Jesus won for us in his life. And I'm experiencing it with you guys, and I know you guys are experiencing it with each other. There's things happening, wonderful things about transformation in our life. Now, interestingly, <clears throat> the next verse over here starts with sin almost it says and this is what i want to look at tonight for if we sin deliberately and knowingly after we have received the knowledge of the truth there is no further sacrifice for sin instead there is a fearful prospect of judgment and a hungry fire which will consume the opponents all right i don't usually do this in the middle but as I was preparing this, as I was thinking this, as I was seeking the Lord, as I was trying to take advantage of my access through the blood of Christ, I wanted to say, Papa, what is this about? What is it about? How do we understand it? How do we respond properly to it? And I got 
I got pretty darn excited because I think for the first time in my life, I understand a little bit about what we're looking at here. And, uh, and so, Father, I ask in the name of Jesus that you would flood us with understanding. That we wouldn't look at all these things as just isolated, separated scriptures that, that speak a message of their own, but that they would be a unified part of your great redemptive plan. We've seen the past catch up with the present in my understanding and in our discussions and understanding. Now I want to see sin find its rightful place in this teaching, in this covenant, and in our lives. And I know that sounds weird, Lord, but it has usurped a place of authority that it did not earn and does not deserve. And I pray that it would be seen in the light of truth, the truth of the new covenant, the truth of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the truth of the sacrifice one time for all to take away and abolish sin. So Lord, share your wisdom with us tonight. In Jesus' name. All right. I'm going to jump back just for a second to Hebrews chapter 6. Um, 6 around, uh, let's say, 4. For once people have been enlightened when they've tasted the heavenly gift and they've shared in the Holy Spirit and tasted the good word of God and the powers of the coming age, it's impossible to restore them again to repentance if they fall away since they are crucifying God's Son all over again on their own account and holding him up to contempt. Now, for my entire life, when I was taught about that passage of Scripture, when I studied it out and thought about everything, the uh, the title Unforgivable Sin was was put, put on that. But that isn't what I think that teaches. When I jumped over here, I always loved teaching about the New Testament and New Covenant, I mean, but I always trembled when I got to verse 26 because then it was like an either-or kind of unforgivable situation as well. But I want to I want to show you what God has shown me, and, and then we're going to take the time to discuss it if you want. There are three verses in this that that I think are the key to understanding what we're looking at. The first is verse 26, and it's the first it's the first three words I want you to look at. For if we. For if we. Okay? Now that'll hold up pretty well, whatever translation you're looking at. But if we, for if we, whatever the case. All right, now, the next verse I want you to look at is in verse 32, and it's the phrase, when you were first enlightened. That's the way it is in this one. When you were first enlightened. Now I want you to jump down to verse 39, and the phrase is, we are not among the hesitators. Some translations would say, we are not among um, those that shrink back. All right. But we are not. And then the second part of that sentence, we are people of faith. We are people of faith. And then our lives will is the last phrase. Our lives will. 
Okay. The reason that I'm excited about going through those is because the stuff in this these two big long paragraphs is not a threat. It is a fact. The person in Hebrews just says, this is what Jesus has done, and this is who we are. We are worshipers with access through his blood. And we have access literally to the holiest of place through the veil, which is his body, and it is a new and living way. Therefore, let's provoke one another to love and good deeds. For or because, if we sin deliberately. What I want you to see is that there's a, there's a different kind of strength to the phrase, for if we, then we read at the end, we are not, and we are, and our lives will be kept safe. All right, I'm going to let sit for a second, and then we're gonna, I'm going to go at it one more time. The context here, in most of my life, and in most ministry, and in most places, I would dare say, in the culture of Christianity that we all are in and have grown up in, sin and what it can do is the, the thing that defines the truth in these passages. But sin is talked about in this reference. If we, you don't have to. We're not supposed to. And there's no reason for us to. If we sin, well, if we sin deliberately and knowingly after we've received knowledge of the truth, there's no further sacrifice for sin. That's a statement of fact. That's not a threat. Jesus did this once for all. That's what the guy has been building up that wrote this thing, what the Holy Spirit's been trying to get across to us for like three or four chapters. Once for all. There's not another place to go. There's not a place to go back to. There's not another sort of righteousness that we can deal with. So this isn't condemning everybody to falling away. Let me go back and read uh, that section in six again and show you. So the part there that, that uh, under a lot of Bibles is talked about the, the unpardonable sin or unforgivable sin. For once people have been enlightened when they've tasted the heavenly gift and they've had a share in the Holy Spirit and tasted the good word of God and the powers of the coming age, it's impossible to restore them again if they fall away since they are crucifying the Son of God all over again on their account and holding them up to contempt. You see when rain, here's the illustration, falls frequently on the earth and the land drinks up and produces a crop useful to people for whom it's being cultivated, it shares in God's blessing. But if it produces thorns and thistles, it's useless and not far off from being cursed. What happens in the end is that it will be burned up. This isn't a doctrinal passage. This is an observation of the fact that there's one place for us to go and draw life from. But look at what it says in verse 9. Even though we speak in this way, my dear people, we are confident that there are better things to be said about you, things that point to salvation. Sin does not define the future. 
It does not define our roles. All right, sin is not an identity statement in either of these two passages of Scripture. Do you know what I mean by the identity statement? If I say, if I fail, that's not an identity statement. That's probably not a great testimony. But you can't draw the conclusion from the fact that if I fail, then that identifies me as a failure. If I fail is just a statement of, uh, what, doubt, possibility, or something. It's not a good thing. Not a good thing. It's not a positive thing. It's not a powerful thing. But it's not the identity statement. You can't take verse 26 in chapter 10 and say, well, we're all sinners. Because it says there, for if we sin. No. As a matter of fact, the whole thrust of the new covenant, the whole thrust of what's being taught here is that we're not sinners. Chapter after chapter, verses after verses, illustration after illustration. You're not a sinner. You're in Christ. You have the law of God written in your hearts or put in your hearts and written in your mind. God calls you his people. He calls himself your God. These are identity statements. This is who we are. But how we think about sin, this is what hit me in the forehead like I did before. How we think about sin is an indicator, a marker, a clue, a hint, a testimony to how we think about that confession that we are called to hold tightly to. Because the one who said it is faithful. Let me go back and read it again. Let us hold tightly to our confession of hope without being diverted. The one who announced the message to us is trustworthy. Without being diverted by what? By if you sin. If we sin. We are so accustomed to living in the barrage of the accusation of the uh, 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 the accuser of the brethren. And we are so accustomed to living in judgment of ourselves and of one another that if we sin is interpreted to us like a reality, like a defining reality. But God just made the point up there earlier. I'm going to put my law in your hearts and I'm going to write it in your mind. And I'm going to have mercy on your transgressions, and I'm not going to remember your sins anymore. If we sin, knowing that God did all that, of course, look what it says. It says, over here in 26 again. For if we sin deliberately and knowingly, after having received the knowledge of the truth, there is no further sacrifice for sin. Instead, there is a fearful prospect of judgment and a hungry fire which will consume the opponents. A fearful prospect of judgment. Where is that fearful prospect of judgment? We're redefining our relationship with God by being diverted from the confession of who we are, what he's done, that it's a once-for-all experience. Go back to chapter 6. It talks about, you know, you should have been this, and once somebody's done this. But he said, we're convinced of better things, things accompanying salvation. 
right down here. He doesn't carry on the theme of if you. He gets into this. When you were first enlightened. That's an affirmative identity statement. You and I are enlightened people. It goes back and it appeals to this amazing statement made in the beginning of the Gospel of John. That Jesus' life, light became the light of men and enlightened every heart. There's something of his light in you that we need to give preference. And the new covenant is the place that allows us to do that. Because it's based on the promise, I'm your God, you're my people, by declaration. Everybody's going to know me, by declaration. Sin is an assault on the declared sonship. And you haven't declared yourself a son. I haven't declared myself a son. God did that. That's what sin is. Now, I've had some people, uh, and I've studied some folks in, that were trying to talk about sin not living out of our identity. I totally agree with that. I totally agree with that. Sin is not something outside of us that then has some sort of authority to define us. But it really genuinely is living apart from our identity. It's living outside the truth of, uh, of, of Jesus. Let me, let me show you. I'm going to jump back to John. John chapter 16. Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit. He said, it's good for you that I go away. Uh, because if I don't go away, the helper won't come. But if I go, I'll send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world and prove it wrong on three counts. Sin, justice, and judgment. Or the more familiar way we hear is he'll convict the world of sin, unrighteousness, and judgment. In relation to sin, listen to this, because they don't believe in me. Who's me that they don't believe in? Me is the one, Jesus. Jesus was referring to himself, and we know in the New Covenant, through the New Covenant, he's the one that took his own blood into the heavenly tabernacle and poured it out once for all. He is the one who is the, the mediator of a better covenant. He is the high priest who's been touched by the feeling of our infirmities and passed through the heavens and invited us to come to the throne of grace where we receive mercy and where our sins are no longer remembered. They're no longer factored in to our relationship with our Father. He did that. So, of course, if we sin and go on sinning in, in the knowledge of all that kind of stuff, there's no other place to go. That doesn't necessarily mean there's instantaneous condemnation and smoke and, and uh, evaporation. It means this is it. This is it. But you're the ones that have been enlightened. We need to live in that light. That's really all that this is saying. If we revert back to, to giving sin permission to define who we are, we are stepping away from this covenant. We're stepping out of receiving the benefit from it. Now, I don't, I don't honestly think that we're going anywhere. But I think we cut ourselves off from any kind of perception of this. In other words, what we're doing is what we're told not to do. We're told to hold fast, or we're told to hold fast that confession and not be diverted, not be twisted away. The thing that pulls us away from this covenant 
is is the ridiculousness and the obviousness of sin. Let me show you how this looks from some other writers. Um, all right, so here's Romans chapter 6. Paul says this here. What are we to say then? Shall we continue to sin so that grace may increase? Certainly not. Why? Well, because we died to sin. How can we still live in it? There's a lot of places. I'm telling you what, I'm seeing it everywhere now. You know, uh, in, in 1 John. I think I got 1 John Mark. Let me read that one to you if I can find it. Um, everyone who goes on sinning is pretty no we know that when he is revealed we should be like him because we shall see him as it is all who have this hope in him makes themselves pure just as he is pure everyone who abides in him does not go on sinning everyone who abides in him does not go on sinning everyone who goes on sinning has not seen him or known him What's the solution, according to John, to the one that goes on sinning? Get to know Jesus. Go through the veil. Go to his presence on the blood. Do whatever you have to do. Look in the scriptures. Go to an ascension group. Lock yourselves away and pray. The way is open. The way is open. Sin is not being held against us. It's not being counted against us. Can we still sin? Or is it possible that if we sin? Yes. But there's no, there's no need to stay away in shame. Because remember, you were enlightened. You were enlightened. This is the kind of people we are. Back to Hebrews. But remember those early times when you were first enlightened. You went through a great struggle and suffering. Well, that doesn't sound like good news because, and let me tell you why. We've also grown up thinking that the realities that we read about in Scripture are actually just propositional realities. They're just things that are applied to us in some kind of legal way because we've grown up under the influence of biblical teaching where our problem was that we violated a rule or violated a law, and then Jesus somehow uh, won a court case on our behalf, and we're not guilty on paper. But what the New Covenant says, what God is saying, is because of who Jesus is and what he did and what he poured out on the cross, you're really not guilty, period. You're not guilty. You're not guilty in front of anyone who matters, and that is the Father. That is God. Jesus' sacrifice is successful. It's not just propositional. It's not that I'm still the same old filthy sinner that I was before Jesus poured his blood out and drew me into that in the incarnation and all of that. He is the high priest touched by the feeling of our infirmities. We really do have access. We really do get mercy. That mercy really does release uh, everything, it's a state of cleansing and forgiveness. And the challenge of Christianity is to believe in our innocence now, our redeemed innocence. Yes, Ronnie? 
I did it in the chat so you could read it. Oh. Oh, sinner saved by grace. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so here's what I want us to understand as we're continuing to move forward. We had a wonderful I, I, I used Tuesday night as a guinea pig to talk about um to talk about discipline and about this stuff, sin and so on. Because uh, we're moving into a, into this part, I mentioned it last week. We're moving into the part of Hebrews now, and we're coming down the home stretch in this book, where we're not comparing new covenant to old. We're not comparing old priests to new priests. We're talking about okay, we're here, we're living in this thing right now. What is it like? What are we supposed to do? I'm supposed to provoke you to think creatively and energetically about love and good works. You're supposed to provoke me to do that. We're supposed to be infectious. <laughs> No pun intended. We're supposed to be infectious about this goodness, infectious about the fact that I'm there. And you think that it's it's uh, you think it's easy to, to, to try to carry the true message of the new covenant. People don't want you to walk up to them and say, hey, you need to know you're innocent in the eyes of the father. Because they know what they do. They know what they've done. And they look at you like you're crazy. But what they don't do is that they haven't they haven't embraced the beauty of all these things are true. I'm going to write my law in your heart. I did that. It's there. The Holy Spirit is is, is making this it's a reality now. It's not a future reality, it's a reality now. And I'm going to put it in your mind. You're not going to be distant from this. Second, you are my people and I'm your God. I have declared it so. Everybody is going to know me. Everybody knows me, least of the greatest. Again, I still don't hardly know how to see that, but I can see that as, as clearly as I can see the fact that I'm going to have mercy on your transgressions, and not one time, no way, am I going to remember your sins and identify you with them at all. So the fruit is not that we have another positional relationship with God where we still sin the same way we always did, but it just doesn't count now. John says, if you're born of God, you know sin. Now, what we learned on Tuesday about discipline is there would be no need for discipline if walking out our sonship as revealed in this covenant wasn't a process. If, we're, if it were just positional, if it were just a transaction that was filed away in the courtrooms of heaven, and oh yeah, your name's on the list. And a lot of people interpret it that way, all the way up to Revelation, where they're looking for your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. If it were just a propositional thing, then none of this would make very much sense, really, when you think about it. But how we think about this can be seen in how we think about sin. If we agree with God, for me to sin is insane. Hey, Richard. Um, uh, Hebrews, um, I mean, it was written to the Israel, Israel, to the Jews. Yeah, yeah, the converted Jews, the Christian Jews. And, well, I don't know if, it, well, I, I always sort of looked at Hebrews as a transitional book. Going from New Testament, I mean, going from Old Covenant to New Covenant. So this scripture, 
I don't even think it applies to us because it's dealing with that transition group that's going on there. I don't know. You know, I've, I've thought that for a while. I, I don't anymore. You're talking the one I'm reading where it says, if we sin or that kind of thing. Yeah. I, I think it does apply to us, but the point I'm trying to make is that it applies to us as a mirror for how we see what we are and who we are and what we have in the new covenant. And here, here's what I mean by that. Uh, our growth, our taking advantage of the access that we have through Christ, our ability to take advantage of, of uh, the veil that is his broken body. These do not instantaneously come with fully mature abilities to use them and execute it. In a little bit, uh, that, you know, so I, I would say that, that it doesn't, it's not any, any more advantageous to say this doesn't apply. Then we, we get over in chapter 13, and it says, uh, you know, entertain strangers, because in doing so, you've entertained angels. I don't think that's, I don't think we can relegate this back to anything outside the present engagement with God that this covenant presents. So I'm not saying there's, I, I think if we think that this is a reversion to some kind of legalistic checklist, it, it reveals that we don't understand and we aren't holding fast that confession of what Jesus is and does in the new covenant. This isn't a step back to legalism. This is embracing a real and not just a substitutionary deliverance from the fear and the, the identity of sin. I mean, the, the, the advice at the end of Hebrews is so incredibly practical. Uh, let the marriage bed be undefiled. Um, feed people that are hungry. These are not ways to get righteousness. This is what sons who have mercy greeted, sin forgiven access to the throne do. This is who we are. This is how we live. And I think this transition, I do think it's transitional, but I think it's transitional trying to pull people. Clearly, you know, Paul doesn't want people to go back and revert to another form to try to pursue righteousness and ignore Jesus. There's no question in my mind about that. But I don't think this is a threat. Therefore, I don't feel like I've got to push it out of the promise of the earlier two chapters. So for me, this is an extremely liberating thing I'm seeing. I don't have to even minimize sin. Sin's just stupid. It's wrong. But it's been dealt with. And so the reflection of my life, the reflection of my life, I need to, because of the work that Jesus did, not because of my maintenance of it, not because of my discipline, because he disciplines me. We're going to get into that, you know, in chapter 12. Because faith, like, um, let me read the last line here. We are not among the hesitators who are destroyed. We are people of faith and our lives will be kept safe. What then is faith? Gets in there. Faith is not something that allows the propositional justification to be uh, attached to me like a document. 
Faith allows me the assurance of getting in the midst of this fact that my that I am forgiven, that God doesn't take my sins into account, and that sin no longer has power over me. Not in a legal way, because that is for sure done away with, but even in an influence way, in an identity way. And so what you were saying, Richard, is where I thought I was coming from as I approached the new covenant and I approached this. And that's why it seemed like a confusing thing. But but right now what I see is, hey, you're not that kind of person. And so there's there's deliverance from acting like it. Go ahead. I just see that's part. I, I just don't see why. I just don't. The scripture just doesn't mean anything to me. I just see it as as a as a verse that was meant for me. And I take all the other stuff that's there. I mean, I, I know that I'm free. I know that 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 I'm dead to sin. I, I mean, it's clearly throughout scripture that sin is no longer ruling over me. So, you know, I just there's just some scriptures that I just. just OK, those let me just bad. say if that, you know. So, uh, and I'm not doubting it. I'm not doubting what you're saying. My response to that is, yay. <laughs> that's what we're, that's what this is. That's where we're supposed to be. Uh, what I'm dealing with is, is being, trying to be honest as I teach through this, why is it there? Is it there as a threat? Is it there as some kind of a warning? Uh, maybe for somebody who's, but see, you've been that, you've been down this road a long time, Richard. You got in that part where, okay, I can come to you, and you do not count this against me. When I come into your presence, after doubting, after screwing up or whatever, there is mercy there. So the if here is a possibility that you've worked yourself well beyond, right? That's what I think it's here for, is is, is so that we know. I'm living in the reality of the access that Jesus did there in verses 19 through 25. We really can live there. It's not just propositional. It's not just in our heads. It's really there. Now, does discipline still apply to us? I think it will. But not, but but only for that relationship we have as sons. Anybody else got a thought? I agree with your point, Richard. But I don't think most people, even among those that we we circulate with, I don't think most people can set that aside without a tinge of feeling like it's a threat or a warning. And what I'm saying is its greatest value is not as those things. It's as just the thing of, if you don't, in some ways, I would be willing to say, if you, if everybody knew you, if you don't think of, of sin the way Richard does, you probably don't think seriously enough about what Jesus did and the access he gave us and the finished nature of his work. Because I think you're, expressing an example of what I think we all want to move towards. You are celebrating your innocence. 
you're doing so by living your life, doing good and coming to people. And that's what I think we ought to do. What about the part that says die to yourself, you know, dying to yourself? That's what I want to. I think, Ray, that, that that's kind of a it's, a, it's another one of these manifestations that's possible in this covenant. In other words, you don't have to fix your attention on yourself all the time. You don't have to manage yourself all the time. You just let it die. There was another passage of scripture. Uh, well, that one I, I read in Romans 6. Paul says, of course we don't sin because we've died with Christ. We've been united with his death and baptism. Yeah, or, but it says, therefore, there is no condemnation. That is correct. Those who not walk after the flesh. But it sounds like there is condemnation if you do. You're quoting, a passage this, you're quoting a passage out of King James at the beginning of Romans that isn't written that way. Yeah. That, who, who don't walk after the flesh, honestly, is added in the text. It's not there in the original. Yeah, it's impossible to please God, those that walk after the flesh. So no. what does that It doesn't consist? say that's what I'm saying, right? In Romans 8, early in the chapter, it does not say what, what the King James says. The words are not there. They added them in. Okay. So the point is, the righteousness that we have is not a byproduct of our walk. Our experience of that righteousness is. If we keep sinning, we're going to be afraid of God. But we don't have to keep sinning. And God's not holding that sin against us. It's just blocking us from knowing who we are and who he is. So do we have consequences if we keep on sinning? Yeah. Yeah, because you're walking around with a, a, a false view of, of who you are in life and everything. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I wanted to know. But the sin doesn't have an ability to define you right. anymore. So the, about what you was talking about, uh, it's, a, I mean, impossible to, I mean, to get back like he was talking about that. Uh, if you continually sin, it's impossible to get back into a relationship with Jesus. Is that what you're saying? I don't think that's the outcome of what that's talking about. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. What it's talking about is when a person gives themselves over in their mind, there's not another place for them to go to repent. Yeah, I'm just asking about this. If we continue to sin willfully, like you said, are we going to be accountable for that? Yeah, uh, it's a big discussion, Ray, and I don't know what you mean by accountable. I mean for, because it says once we were enlightened and we keep on continually sinning after we know that it's wrong. But the scripture here says you're not those people. Oh, okay. All right. You see that? Yeah. Because, but you're not those people. Okay. Are you, are you planning on continually sinning even though you know that you're not innocent? really, but you do slip every once in a while and you keep slipping and slipping and slipping. Okay, let me and ask I you something. Slipping and sliding. I, I want to continue. I understand. Do what's right. You think, okay, we got to answer this and then I'm going to let somebody else talk. Okay. 
Do you think that slipping is the same thing as continually sinning? Yeah, if we're willfully sinning, right? Is that it's not held? Is it held against us if we willfully sin? That's all I'm asking. Um, no, God says that I will have mercy on your transgressions and your sins I will not remember anymore. Oh, that's all I wanted to know. Okay, good. I should have answered that earlier. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So continue. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against him. And a lot of the sins that he wasn't counting against them, people were doing it. Will, okay. No. Okay. Anybody else got a thought? Would you guys like to break up and discuss this a little bit among yourselves? We got a few minutes. We could do it. I don't think, I mean, this is complicated enough that you don't have to be a genius to know where you stand on it once you talk about it. Yeah, I don't have to discuss anything anymore. All right. I've got it. So thank you for refreshing my, you know, thoughts about it. Okay, cool. So I'll see you all. You going to head out? Tuesday. Okay, buddy. Okay. God bless. All right, I've got Riley ready to break us up into some groups. I told him I'd like it to be about four or five in a group. So we got one, two, three, four, uh, four, four is 12, 13. So, Larry, I have a question. If you were to summarize what you just taught us or taught, what would it be? How would you summarize it? Um, one of the mindsets that has to change if we are to experience what Christ has secured for us in the new covenant is that we have to give up the belief that sin has the power to define us. It doesn't mean that we don't have the ability to sin. If we didn't have the ability to sin, we wouldn't need to have those transgressions met with mercy. And if we didn't have the, the ability to sin, to commit a sin, uh, knowingly or unknowingly, there would be no meaning to the fact that God is not going to remember our sins anymore. But that the, the revelation in the book of Hebrews is not about sin. It's about the life of a son that comes in this covenant. And one of the ways to do that, to know that, and to experience that, is to come to believe exactly what Richard described, that this is not the issue between me and God anymore. And so I think that if if it catches in our heart, like it says, oh, if I sin while still knowing, then that's going to equal this. That is a revelation that we need to back up two paragraphs and go, I need to hold on to this confession because God is trustworthy. He does have mercy on my sin. I am his God. I am his, his child and he's my God. And this is a one-time finished work. And Jesus is coming back without reference to sin. So I think that, that, that get being stuck in the fear of that is what needs to be revealed here. Okay, thanks. I mean, I, I, think, it's a, I think it's a complicated issue in our heads and in our hearts. 
until it gets settled. And then once it gets settled, then we embrace the discipline because we've walked a wrong step or we've done something. And then God comes in and says, no. Um, and I do, I, I, I like what you said, Richard. I like the fact, I think the goal is I'm loved. And I see it even answers the question, like in first John, where it says, uh, little children, I'm writing this to you that you don't sin. He is born. God doesn't sin. Uh, if you say you don't sin, you make God out to be a liar. That's all super confusing. But it's not confusing if we realize that this covenant is the redemptive brilliance into which we can go from being people who God recognizes as sons into the actual people who live in the full reality of them. And what we're going to see in the next few chapters, we're going to see about faith. It starts with kind of a negative-ish sort of statement there in, in verse 6. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Well, does that mean that I might not be pleasing to God? I don't think that's the point. I think the point is, here's faith. It's built into the new covenant. And that faith is based on, we're going to see, it's based on acceptance. He who comes to God must believe that he is and is a rewarder. So to, to the degree that we believe that coming to God in all of our transparency, even including stupid things or, or whatever, coming to God in all that transparency, he greets us with mercy. He loves us. He doesn't remember our sins. He doesn't hold them against us. And he rewards us. That's the journey that I think the new covenant invites us to be on. I think you said it. What resonated best with me tonight was when you said, we're not those people. Yeah. That if we truly believe that we died on the cross with, with Christ for our sin, for our sins, that we are saved and we're not those people. We're not those people. Even if there's a bit of evidence thrown off by our life that somebody would go, well, you look like one of those people. <laughs> Or I saw you the other day say something that makes me think you act like one of those people. And if you say that or do that, then you probably think that. And But that's, I think, Elizabeth, that's the, that's the point here, is that we're not those people. And we're not those people by virtue of some amazing self-disciplined choice. And that's what we're going to see as we move forward. We're those people because Jesus died for us once for all. Because he became the mediator of a better covenant, because we have a high priest in the house, because he has made this sacrifice and he used his own blood to do it. So there's no outside. There's no there's no, nothing that keeps us from being the people that the new covenant is making us into. And then the father treats us not with judgment, not with with condemnation. The father treats us with discipline. And he says, don't grow weary in that. He's treating you like a son. And faith is a gift. And all the promises that went to these old guys and gals in Hebrews 11, they're being held for you and me to have fulfillment in. Because it's a gift, because of this covenant. Because Jesus is perpetually living to make intercession for us. That's what I'm talking about. And... So when you say we're not those people, how can anybody be those people? They're not saved. Well, yeah. I'm, 
I blow off the safe thing. Well, we can't blow off the believe thing. We don't have the right to do that. It it matters. But the new covenant is for everybody, isn't it? I believe it. I believe the new covenant is provision for everybody. Yeah, and saved or not, not saved or whatever. I don't know. I don't know what saved means. Okay. I know what believe means, and I know that the the Bible doesn't give an an excuse not to believe. Because if we don't believe, and if we just act according to that, even in the face of our knowledge, our head is going to be filled with a fearful expectation of of judgment. That's what it says. Yeah, and we talked about judgment as not being that bad. Well. A while ago. Yeah, but this one isn't talking about analyzing what God is, in fact, doing in judgment. It's saying that if we go on sinning willfully and knowledgeably, that... What's going to be left in our emotions, in our psyche, is going to be a fearful prospect of judgment and a hungry fire which will consume opponents. That's what's going to be in our heads and in our hearts. I don't know. It's not in God's head. So, I'm sorry, but I'm confused. (laughs) Well, what you perceive may or may not be what God sees as reality. And the reality that God sees, we acquire that as our reality through what Jesus did and through us holding fast to the confession of that. And if a person doesn't do that, then that's what this process is designed to help them do. That's why faith is a gift. That's why discipline's coming. Jen, did you want to say something? Yeah, this is the verse that always bugs me that I don't really have an answer for from um, Hebrews 10, 30. And I'm saying this because um, I do believe God is forgiven completely once and for all. But what do you do with the vengeance is mine? I will, I will repay. What what is he saying there if there's no more not yeah. holding our against them? Um, well, the, the scripture says God's going to pay everybody back. Uh, all right, so let me try to, this is good. This is a good question. I'm not going to have a satisfactory answer for it, but here's why it's a good question. We are so steeped in the concept that that redemption is about retributive justice. Right. That we can't read words like that and not plug them into there. But what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, you're not those people. This is not that way. This is not that covenant. And, and so... What I saw today, and, and as I was leading up this earlier this week when we were talking about discipline, is, oh, my gosh, Lord, these things, you allow these thoughts, you allow these fears to assail us so that we will not grow complacent thinking this is just some far-off thing, but that we will really engage in the transformation 
to see us like you see us. And that we will live in the simplicity of that real translation and not the way I've been taught to look at it my whole life through Western rationalism as some um, thing out there in the distance. Um, the simplest way to let this, like that kind of verse there in 30, to let it sit there is because that is that is true. I mean, people aren't going to get away with anything. There's nothing that's going to, you know, we're really going to be changed. We're not just going to be jerks carrying around a get out of jerk this free card. We're actually going to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. And this, this life that we're going through here that involves faith and involves discipline and involves patience. Uh, like patience is one of the big things. In 12, uh, the way Wright puts it, I love it. It says, run the race set before you with patience. We need patience because we're being changed, literally, not positionally, actually. And and so somehow, yeah, that's a tough, I mean, see, but but what it reveals, this is what I mean, Jen. It reveals that you and I read that with a with a punishment paradigm in our mind. New message is received from Sam Curtis. Question. It, 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 yeah, I'm going to say it one more time. It reveals that we have a punishment paradigm in our mind. And all, all we have to do is know that I can come to God and get mercy and, and find grace to help in time of need. And so, Father, I come to you because I obviously am imparting to you something that my heart and tons of other scriptures reveal to me is not true. So show me why I see it this way and set me free from that. that. And that's the process I'm going through. Now, I can't just say, I don't want to think about it. That doesn't make, that doesn't seem right to me because it's here. But Father, I import that, I import to that a kind of punishment, separation, judgment paradigm. And I don't think that's true. Yeah, Ronnie. So I'm stuck with the expression, we're not those people. And I realize that's not straight out of the word, the Bible. No, it is. It is? Yeah. Okay. Right well, if we're not those people, then the concept that I have is that apparently somewhere out there, there are those people. Is that a, a false understanding? Because if that's uh, the case. No, they're there. They're there. Then if that's the case, then it seems that the new paradigm that Jesus the new covenant is for all of us. Well, let me, I get stuck. Now you're with you're attaching two things that, that don't have to be attached. Hmm. We are not among the hesitators. Are there people that hesitate? Yes. Does that make sense? Okay. Okay. Who are destroyed that I don't know how to explain right now. <laughs> we are people of faith and our lives will be kept safe. Are you tempted to trade in your understanding of your status because there's people out there that don't understand theirs? No, but but there's a big change in my understanding of my status and other people's status based on my new understanding of God. And so the in and out thing has been removed. Right, I would gone. agree. 
toast. And so to bring in something else that seems to have a in and out aspect to it is hard for me. There's do you, cognitive do think, dissonance. Do you think the in and out thing is gone from God's point of view? Yes. Do you think the in and out thing is gone from all people's point of view? Clearly, no. What's the conflict? The conflict, it seems that God is defining an in and out. No, he's identifying people who think they're out. Who only have a fearful expectation of judgment. Okay. Does that make sense? There are still people that think that all over the world. Right. That doesn't mean they'll have that judgment. They just have an expectation of it. What they expect or don't expect isn't going to govern what God does anyway. Okay. But it is going to govern what they perceive. Well, that helps a lot. Thanks. That was, that was good. That was a great, great way to get through it. I don't know how to explain all this way. I've been like, I want to go back to Jen. Cause I, I would guess that that was pretty unsatisfactory. Like it was before you asked the question. Uh, but We can't just scribble it out. Nope. But we have access to go to God and say, I don't get it. Help well, me. I still it. don't get it. You're right. I still don't get it. So. I know. I and, know. I think, and I think that's the key right there. I mean, we're, we're trying to read a, a um, manuscript that was written long, long time ago to a different people mm-hmm. with a different culture, different language, and we're trying to understand what it was what was said and but if we know the basics if we just know that he has forgiven us Mm -hmm. and i mean then take those scriptures and say well i just don't understand it right now god reveal it to me when you when i have further understanding what i'm saying is that the the development or, or or the new the new covenant itself is a relationship it's not a document and therefore, within the bounds of a relationship, there is a process for growing into the understanding of who we are and who God is. And the cool part about it is it's a relationship in which we are operating from full acceptance. Even though we might be operating from false images, Ronnie, or ignorance about certain things or whatever, that is not governing our acceptance. That, In other words... Jesus has already finished his work, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father, waiting for his enemies to be made his footstool. I don't fully know what that means, but it means something, and it also means that he's not all anxious about whether this is going to come out okay. And as we move forward in the covenant, discipline and faith and training is to get us to fully live in what Christ has provided for us and made for us, I think. Sterling, do you have some? Yeah. Uh, I I know it's a little bit unrelated, but, you know, something from Baxter Kruger and uh, Jesus and the undoing of Adam, something he talks about that really kind of sticks with me and, and keeps reminding me of what, this subject is all about is that 
the original sin wasn't that they disobeyed God and they ate an apple when he told them not to. It was that they believed he was holding something back from them. Mm-hmm. That they truly believed that he wanted to withhold because he could, you know, uh, or they could be like him and, and, and they could do more and be more than he was willing to give them. And I feel like with that in mind, this identity and, and what he did with the new covenant, it really changes that perspective of, you know, what was he really truly restoring? Was it this idea that we did bad things and now we won't do bad things and now we won't have to burn forever because of it? Or is it that he forgives how we perceived him and that warped perversion in our minds about who he is? And now we can be in relationship with him. And, and so I think it just creates a very sort of fundamental and structural idea about what this forgiveness truly looks like, what that new covenant does for us. Right. That these other perspectives don't quite provide the right angle for, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I would only add two things. The, the other perspectives are just that. They're other perspectives. They're how we see in a fallen and broken world, in the distorted world, uh, who we are and who God is. And that you're, you're right, is the original problem that Adam and Eve got into was they saw God as different than he was, and then they saw themselves. So the, the new covenant isn't a legal trickery thing to try to sneak us into heaven unconverted. The new covenant is the government of God resting on the shoulders of Jesus that cleansed us and forgave us and then put us in a family environment, a loving environment, an accepting environment in which we can grow up fully into the sons that we are. It's And as long as we keep trying to make it transactional we're going to run into really really challenging questions about it but if the new if the new covenant has its way with us we will end up being like jesus loving the people around us and living in the peace and security of that knowledge well and i feel like there's this restoration i mean you look at the the manner in which jesus handled it all it is so antithetical to this sort of law and judgment perspective. Right. It, it would make no sense to somebody who's concerned about making sure that their enemies are smited or is that the right? Yeah. Is that how you say it? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Smitten. Smitten. <laughs> I will I will say one more thing to you, Jen. You cannot ask that question of me without me now being provoked to look into it and go to the Father and say, what do you mean? What is what is vengeance? I don't doubt that it's yours, but what is it? And uh, so if I get anything, I'll be sure and share. I'll just throw in that if someone really, really, say someone killed 
someone you love, mm-hmm. that it's up to God to deal with that and not you. Um, Maybe. Okay. I mean, ultimately, I, that's true. I would say what the New Covenant does is, is create an environment in which I can be made into a person incrementally, step by step, discipline by discipline, revelation by revelation, not in a legal way, but in a relational way, where God can accept me and have mercy on my anger and vitriol over it, where he can give me grace to help in those very difficult times of need so that I can be a person who can be on God's side in that. I think the new covenant is overloaded with capacity for transformation. And all the while we're accepted wherever we are in it and connected with the rest. When we get to the end of chapter 12, it says we don't come to a mountain that's spoken that they were so afraid of because it said even kill the animals. We're coming to angels and, and God, and we're coming to Christ, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the spirit of uh, righteous men made perfect and holiness. It's amazing what this is about. We want to get, we want to get saved and behave acceptably. God wants to turn us back into the intimate sons and lovers that, that we were designed to be. And, and he's doing it through the new, new covenant. So, I, yeah. Anyway. All right. You guys are awesome. I, uh, hopefully didn't overly confuse everyone. I think it's great when we can debate things like this and not debate, but discuss it openly without yeah. worrying what anybody's thinking or feeling. I really like this group. Cool. Let me tell you something I like about it. I like the fact that I don't, as much as I might want to, and I have the capacity to want this, I like the fact that I don't have to have answers and I'm not deceived anymore into thinking that's my responsibility. Answers for everything. Because the honest truth is, if I had answers to everything and every question that could be raised out of Scripture like this, you would have a very small God. And you don't have a very small God. You have an enormous God. An enormous God. And, uh, and so there's a, there's a degree of security that, uh, uh, that allows for humility in the middle of this. Like what you said, Richard, I know God loves me. I don't know what this is about, but I know God loves me. And I know I can come to him. And I know if I screw up, I can come to him. And I don't have a fearful, what did it say? Uh, a fearful expectation uh, of judgment uh, yeah of judgment and a fear of the hungry fire which will consume the enemy i think there's fire i think god's fire but i know that it's the same part of him that his love and his light and his spirit is so thanks elizabeth that's a good encouragement and I, i don't see how we could do it differently we've tried for most of our lives We've tried to do it different. We've tried to have an answer for everything. We've tried to be able to explain everything else. As a last resort, we underline our favorite scriptures with one of those inch-thick magic markers so we don't have to deal with what's in front or behind it. Let's not do that. Let's trust our position in the new covenant. All right. Let's be highlighters. <laughs> highlighters, not draw, not... Not underlined markers. Yeah. <laughs>
Yes, Meg. No, just. No. <laughs> Amen. <coughs> well, super glad that Tim's coming home. Yes. That's encouraging. Yes, yes. It's good. Hey, Paul. Hey, Larry. Got any last comments on this uh, most delicate of all topics? Boy, it's a, I'll tell you what, it's a, it's a kind of a theological minefield, but um, I'm, I like the way you presented it. I'm going to be praying about it. Candidly, it raised more questions um, than I expected it would, but that's okay. And I really, really, really liked your quote about if you could answer all the questions, we have a small God. Yeah. Um, that's got to be the most clever thing I've heard in a couple of weeks. Well, the one thing I walk away from this from, and uh, some of you, I hope, I hope this may be helpful. It probably deserves more. I know if I struggle with, if my initial interpretation of something like this section of scripture leads me to be afraid of, of that I'm wrong, that God, it really is retributive, all this kind of stuff. I know that that means I'm still thinking in those terms. Right. And even though I don't have the ability to not think in those terms, Thank God, by backing up two paragraphs, I do have the ability to go into the Holy of Holies through the, the, the broken or the body of Jesus and by his blood and say, Father, have mercy on me for not knowing what the heck this means and give me grace and help me understand it. And Jen and I are going to have a party when we both come up with the same revelation on what this means. Yeah, I, you know, the thing is, we, we have to look, I, you know, I view scripture in, I read now the entire Bible through, you know, the perfect work of the cross, perfect union, perfect love of God. Mm -hmm. That's the shoulder for everything. He's in us, we're in him. Um, and so tackling the scripture like this, this passage has always been a challenge for me. Sure it is. Oh. I can't tell you how tempting it was to just skip it and move on to faith. <laughs> Everybody wants to talk about faith. I don't think we... I don't think we have a chance of interpreting the faith chapter right if we don't understand what led to it, where it says here, uh, we are people of faith and our lives will be kept safe. <clears throat> what then is faith? I've never seen the question following the, of course there's a question about what is it. The writer uses, we are people of faith and our lives will be kept safe to explain all of the stuff above it. And then the next logical question, of course, is what then is faith? So I'll have all your answers next week on that one. Thanks, Larry. Anyway, I love you guys. Bless you. Father, thank Good you for time. taking care of us that, uh, that are sick and that we're sick with COVID. I pray, Father, that you'll uh, uh, just continue to protect everybody. Thank you for the, the, the victories that are coming in that arena. And Lord, we don't fully understand all this kind of stuff. And I don't want to take away from you anything of your bigness, anything of your glory, anything of your righteousness. Uh, I know heaven's not going to be a place where a whole bunch of sin and darkness has been swept under the rug. And for much of my life, I've used the atonement as a, as a rug to sweep that stuff under. And I don't think that's going to happen now. I think we really are going to be transformed into the image of, and likeness of Jesus and we are going to belong there. We're not going to get there and, and be shy to look around because we realize that at the core of our being, we don't belong there. 
at the core of our being, you are transforming us into the image and likeness of Christ. And you're doing it through his sacrifice, through your grace and mercy, and you're doing it through this covenant and all that it has absorbed and taken in throughout history. So I thank you for your redemptive genius. I thank you for loving us for real. And I thank you for your word, your Bible, your scriptures, the truth that's being revealed in them. And I thank you for Jesus. And as Richard would close it, I thank you that you just love us and you accept us. And we come to you in that confidence in spite of our ignorance on some of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 